Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. I graduated from Old Dominion University, and I had been a commuter uh, for all four years. I was a commuter there from Chesapeake, driving the 30 minutes a day from my parents' house, Chesapeake, Virginia. But then Chris and I eventually got married, and we got married as babies um, between my junior and senior year at Old Dominion. And so I commuted for my final year of college from our very first apartment. And we were two people living on one teaching income while I finished up at ODU. And so, of course, we, we found the cheapest apartment we could afford in Chesapeake, right across from the Walmart, because I did not buy Whole Foods back then. Um, and it was Red Cedar Court, apartment 2B. In May, in May of that year, graduation had finally arrived. And we received word that Chris Matthews would give the commencement address at my graduation. Not that Chris Matthews. This Chris Matthews. MSNBC Chris Matthews, who had hosted Hardball with Chris Matthews since 1997. And it was this big deal. And it was a good speech. And ODU, of course, honored him and awarded him with the fake version, like the pretty version for the stage, the really big version of an honorary degree from the School of Arts and Letters at ODU. And then about a month later, to our small Chesapeake apartment at Red Cedar Court, apartment 2B, I got this, this letter from the president at Old Dominion University, in fact, Chris got this letter, to our apartment 2B across the street from Walmart. We received an envelope from the president, and, and in it is a personal note from President Ranta. Dear Dr. Matthews, <laughs> congratulations once again on a well-deserved honor you should expect your honorary degree in the mail shortly. Thank you for a wonderful speech as well. It was a privilege and a pleasure to know you and to meet you. And many pictures of 
Under scribe, I just do not have enough time for that today. I will get to it, though, under another word, I promise. I'm going to get to the authorship of the Gospels. It's just too much to handle in one sermon, but I promise you I'll get to it. Um, but let's begin today with, with this word, scribe, as it relates to Paul's letters. And we're beginning earlier than the authorship of the Gospels. And this might blow your mind a little bit. That the, the letters of Paul were written before the Gospels. While the Old Testament, as we talked last week, was written over this course of like a thousand years, the New Testament was written over the course of just about a 50-year span with a couple of outliers that have been debated. And this New Testament, it's... It's less a collection of books and more a collection of letters. Of the 27 books in the New Testament, 21 of them are letters. And while most people assume the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the oldest parts, it's many of these letters that actually hold that distinction. So take a look at, at this. Um, this. This can help you. Um, and, and, and actually, let's go to the next one. That will help better. Um, while most of Paul's letters were written between about... 50 and 65 AD, the first of the New Testament Gospels, which is likely Mark, isn't dated until about 65 to 70 AD. With Matthew and Luke thought to be in the 70s or 80s, and then John not even until the 90s. Which means that Paul did not have a Gospel to base anything from. Let's pause for a second and remember what happens in this part of the story, what's happening in the New Testament. Around 4 BC, Jesus is born, and then he's crucified and buried during Passover in 29 AD. And his resurrection and ascension occurred shortly after that. Following this, which, which we celebrated just two weeks ago, it's thought that that in this small church of about 120 people, that this powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit happens, and soon thousands upon thousands of people come to believe that this man, that, this, that these religious leaders had condemned to die, was actually the long-awaited Messiah. Meanwhile, the religious establishment continue to assert that Jesus is a false Messiah. Do not listen to these people. Jesus is a false Messiah, and this young Jewish leaders saw, zealous in this proclamation, that Jesus, no, is not the Messiah. Jesus is a false Messiah. He, well, he arrests people and he persecutes anyone leading this movement. And within the first three to four years after Jesus' death, that included the martyrdom of Stephen and many others. Until about 33 AD, this is now just four years after Jesus' death, Jesus died in 29. In 33 AD, something shocking happens. This young zealot, Saul, who was certain, certain, like many others, that this Jesus was a false Messiah, on his way to actually persecute and kill more Christians in Damascus, he has this incredible encounter with God, an experience so shocking that this, this persecutor of Christians becomes Christianity's greatest advocate and from then on, he is known by the Greek name Paulos, or Paul. Following this moment, um, hey, um, would somebody like to answer this call and get some subs for me? Here you, thank you. Awesome. Um, following this moment, there is this span 
of about a decade of Paul's life that is unaccounted for. We don't have any knowledge of this 10-year this span. And then suddenly at 45 AD, Paul crops back up again in, in history. And he's now called all of a sudden to take the gospel to the non-Jewish world. And early on, Paul had this rhythm, this method. It was, I don't know if it was intentional or not. I, I don't know. Maybe it was. Um, he, to me, he doesn't seem like a particularly intentional person. He seems more like the zealot, right? Like he, he moves from his feelings. But he had this way of doing these missionary journeys. Step one, he would enter a town. He would preach first always to the Jews. Always. He had preached first to the Jews in the synagogue until he was asked to leave the synagogue, finally. Oh, that feels a little bit purposeful to me. Then he would go preach to the Gentiles because he's now been kicked out of the synagogue. Dozens of people in that town, mostly Gentiles, some Jews, perhaps hundreds in some place, would come to trust in Jesus Christ because of what he preached. And before Paul left each town, he would organize the believers into churches of some kind and often commissioning leaders to help lead in, in some way. Of course, these fledgling churches, four years after Jesus' death, would quickly have questions, so many questions, and encounter all kinds of challenges in being in life together in a, in a place where many people are still saying this is the false Messiah. Most people are saying this. And so they need direction. And so they would send messengers to go find Paul, wherever Paul was now on this journey, wherever he was in some other town. And Paul would send back with them. They didn't have a mail system. I don't know if you pictured that, but Paul would send back with them letters to where they are with encouragement and instruction, answers to questions, and sometimes correction. And it was these letters that became the first documents, the first documents of what we now call the New Testament. Over the next 15 years, it is likely that Paul wrote dozens upon dozens of letters to churches and individuals of the 27 documents that make up the New Testament, 13 claim to be written by Paul himself, which leaves us with questions, right? Where are all the other letters? Where did all the other ones he wrote go? Well, some of them have been combined, we think, to make up, like we believe 2 Corinthians is made up of like five letters, perhaps, that were all edited together to sound seamlessly like one. It's also possible that portions of these letters Paul wrote in the, these first 15 years were later used to, to write letters that were written with Paul's name or thought to be Paul's name, but long after his death. And it's also just possible that these letters were lost. As early Christians had no way to conceive of them as scripture. No way. They were just letters. Which gets me back to my original argument that when we read much of the New Testament, Paul's letters and the letters of anyone really in, in the New Testament, anyone's letters, we must do so as if we're reading someone else's mail. As if we've been sent an honorary degree that is not our own. Because the apostles, they wrote these letters to address specific needs and situations and communities of, of this Greco-Roman world of 2,000 years ago 
Well, what Paul wrote to the Galatians concerning a, a particular situation may not be what he would say today to you or to this church or to any church. We have to know that. It's someone else's mail. Having said that, though, having said that, it did become clear to early Christians, even before Paul's death, that what, what Paul said in, in a letter to one church somehow offered important teaching and guidance to other churches. It's like we were all humans. It's like we all had the same issues. And so much of those churches began to copy and exchange Paul's letters during this time. And after his death, many letters were collected and circulated and to, um, to, together among the churches and becoming the earliest nucleus of what is now the New Testament. So speaking of Paul's writing of these letters, before we, we get on to, to our scripture for today, let me acknowledge that no, Paul is not thought to have scribed them. I think we get this picture, maybe if you've ever wonderfully written or wonderfully read, wonderfully, if you've ever wonderfully um, written letters too, I would love to see, do you have pen pal relationships or like, do you write to some long lost lover? I would love to see your letters. Um, but if you've ever read, if you've ever come to an old desk in your grandmother's house and stumbled upon old handwritten letters, or if you've ever, which I commend to you, read Martin Luther King's letters from a Birmingham jail. If you've ever done anything like that, you get this picture with Paul, like Paul is sitting in jail, just with beautiful script, writing letters. Paul did not scribe these letters. He couldn't have because there is quite a bit of evidence in scripture and beyond scripture and other historical documents that suggest that Paul had an early onset of macular degeneration, making it very difficult for him to, um, to, to see and to uh, write. He actually talks in one part of it, um, one letter, uh, he says something like, when I write, see these big letters I write with my own hand. Um, these, they, they would not stay within a page in the way that he could not write them as he would have wanted to. And so he relied heavily, heavily, heavily. This man who is the, at the core of our faith relied heavily on scribes to, and he would dictate word by word to them. He would say, write this in this word only. But sometimes these scribes would summarize ideas. And sometimes these scribes, whoever they were, would take liberties with ideas. We have to know this to read Paul. Paul's letters were, all, were mostly written with the help of an assistant of some kind. And each new town might involve a new assistant as he found someone in that town that would take his word and put it on paper for others. And so that's why in writings, in his writings, there is a complete inconsistency in a voice. There, there, it's all over the place. Vocabulary changes throughout. Um, style of writing changes throughout. And that's because likely this was written by many, many different people. There are also other letters that we refer to as the deutero 
Pauline letters, which are now, they're the disputed letters of Paul. Five or six of them are thought by mainline Protestant and by Catholics, not, not evangelicals, they're pretty sure Paul wrote it, but um, mainline Protestant and Catholics are all pretty sure that these letters written after Paul's death, no way he even did them. So they're probably written by people who found themselves in Pauline communities, people who, who were surrounded by other people who were with Paul along the journey or met Paul along his journey at some point. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all of Paul's letters. We don't have time. All 21 letters that are Pauline or Deuteropauline, but today I would like us to talk about one, to examine the letter of the Galatians, which many believe is the oldest New Testament document that there is. Often, you will see on a, something like this, you will often see... 1 Thessalonians before it, um, but that's highly debated, and most people now will say that it's Galatians. Did you hear it as we read today, what was happening as, um, as, as Joaquin read this, this story? Paul begins his letter, Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who, who raised him from the dead. In, the, in this opening letter, Paul immediately establishes his message and, and his authority that it comes from Jesus Christ and God the Father. This is the only letter to begin with this claim out of all of Paul's writings. And as we will see, he begins this way because in Galatia, his authority is greatly being challenged. Notice to, to whom he sends this letter. To the churches of Galatia. Galatia was, was not a city, but a geographic region in Asia. Maybe if we put up the map in there, you can see this. It's this geographic region in Asia Minor, which was itself part of the Roman Empire. Paul sends this one letter to the churches, the many churches of Galatia. So he intends this letter to be copied and circulated. One of the few we know he absolutely intended it to be done that way. Here's some helpful background for unlocking the meaning of this letter to the, the Galatians. Paul, Paul was not the only Jewish rabbi to become a follower of Jesus. He's our guy. <laughs> All of the, we talk about Paul a lot in the church, but he's not the only one. Others, including a number of Paul's fellow Pharisees, had also accepted that Jesus was this long-awaited Jewish Messiah. But not all Jewish followers of Christ saw the implications of Christ's life and death and resurrection in the same way that Paul did. For Paul, Jesus was not only revealed God, Jesus not only revealed God to the human race, Jesus had become the fulfillment of the law of Moses. And that was a big distinction for Paul. The covenant God had made with Israel through Moses was now set aside. It's suspended by, by a new covenant made with, with the entire human race through Jesus Christ in mind. So many of Paul's fellow Jewish Christians believed the law was still binding and did not like what Paul was preaching. They believed that when Gentiles put their faith in Christ, they were to still be circumcised. They were to still 
be re they were required to follow the law. They were, they were converting not only to Christ, but they were wanting these Gentiles converting to also convert to Judaism. And so these Christians were referred to as the Judaizers because they believed that obeying the law was an essential part of their salvation. Later, these people become known as the legalists. Paul and these Judaizing Christians did not see eye to eye, and this is what happens. The Judaizers had this irritating knack for every time Paul went to a new place, they would follow Paul into that territory. This irritating knack for following behind Paul shortly after he had started a church, just a few weeks later, they, here they come on his back heels to announce to these same converts that they needed to be circumcised and follow the law. So Paul's saying they don't. He's saying, they're all saying they do. And they came, they came to correct Paul in this area for his inadequate theology and, and, to lead, and for the way he's leading all of these you know, naive Christians um, away from Jewish faith. So this is the historical situation that's happening. And with all of this in mind, in Galatians, Paul writes this, I am astonished, you people, that you are so quickly, like literally, it was 10 days ago that I was there, you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and they want to pervert this gospel of Christ. But even if, if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what has been proclaimed, you must not accept it, right? So here's what happens, though. Once you start naming some legalists, what comes after that is people hear Paul's gospel as if you accept Jesus and you are not beholden to the law, then you get to accept Jesus and do whatever you want. You have to think there is no gospel at this time. We have this idea that when Paul says that, the God, that, that, that Christ fulfills the law of Moses, that, that there was actually a document where they said, look what Jesus did, look what Jesus said. This is the new law. There was no document like this. These are not written yet. And so these people are utterly confused if they have nothing at all. If they are supposed to, the, the law of Moses is supposed to be fulfilled in Jesus. What does that mean for the way we live our lives? And so you can imagine this rolls on to having people living all kinds of ways. Not treating the poor, not inviting the poor into their communities. Um, people who are uh, sleeping in circumstances, taking advantage of, of the slaves in their homes, um, taking advantage of the children in their homes, um, living in pretty just not, um, not civilized manner, not the way that the Jewish covenant would have, would have had them live. And so Paul then, only four chapters into Galatians, writes to them, for you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. Now the works of the flesh are. And we know this verse, right? We know this verse, this, it goes on to say, the works of the flesh are impurity and licentiousness and idolatry and sorcery and, and strife and jealousy and anger and quarrels and dissensions and, and fractions and envy and drunkenness. Oh, and there goes the church that says you're not allowed to drink anymore. We have this, this set of scriptures, but if we don't take into account
count the context in which this is written. If we don't remember that this was a, a letter written to another people, if we don't understand, when, when they got these letters, they had no Gospels. They had nothing written down like we have that even tells them whatsoever who Jesus is. They are barely making sense of who Jesus is. And so Paul says, hey, there are two poles here, legalism and this libertinism. And, and he's constantly in this battle between the two. Either side leads to shipwrecking our faith, he says. And so as we read Galatians 2,000 years after it was written, there are sections that immediately seem relevant to us, and there are other sections that are so confusing to us, or there are sections that feel incredibly legalistic, and then there are sections that feel like we don't know how to live our faith out of them. This is what we have in these, to know that this is a letter not written to you is one of the first places we must start. Let's consider for a second just how much the world has changed since that moment in time. But also be grateful to have these letters that share with us this, the rawness of the human condition, right? That no, they were not written to us, and yet in them we can see every, every human weakness, every human evil. And somehow through that, we can meet God in it. This is a to-be-continued sermon. And that then we will talk next week um, about these Gospels and what having the Gospels but actually having them to hold in your hand and to, and to read them, how that changed the, the Greco-Roman world um, about the 70s, 80s, how that changed the way we talked about God. Let's pray. God, we are grateful that you are in our midst and that you meet us even in letters that are not our own. That we... We find within, um, you know, history repeats itself, right? We, we learn lessons, and then we forget those lessons we've learned, and then cause and effect leads us to making the same mistakes over and over and over again. We, we do this. Um, we've done this in the, la the last, if we've done this in the last 100 years, God, of the history of our country, we have done this in the last 100 years, even in the history of the world, we know that, that it's, it's possible these people struggled with the same things as we struggle with today. And yet as we come to your word, God, it is so important that, that our minds engage with where our hearts are. We read a verse in Galatians that really captivates us, or we read a verse that makes us want to be a particular type of person, and then we have to add our head to it to know, um, to know God, that you are in it and, and that you are in those people, but that this letter was not written to us. Um, it's an important place to begin as we talk about the New Testament. Um, and if anyone here today, God, is, is struggling with this, if this feels um, like, if, if it feels like what they know is being stripped out from under them, or if knowing that Paul um, didn't actually write these letters, or that there are other scribes involved and other perspectives involved, if that 
if that starts to deconstruct in their minds, um, maybe what they have based their faith on, God, I ask that, that that deconstruction would be good and fruitful work. And if those here today who have been skeptical of the Bible feel like it's been reinforced today, I hope that they would find in it the kind of grace that we, we find when we, we encounter that humans have had the same condition for so long. Um, there is forgiveness and, and beauty and mercy in that. And we join with him in prayer with your son Jesus, who taught us to pray today. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.